In Psalm 51, it's my prayer that God would take this psalm and use it in your and my life this morning and prepare our hearts as we're going to be coming to these elements for the communion service. And I believe that he will do that if we will allow him. And I want to begin by reading this psalm. You're very familiar with it. But follow along as I read Psalm 51. And we begin with the subscript at the top there. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing for your righteousness. O Lord, Open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. This morning, I don't want you to miss the significance of the title of my message. Finding God and restoration from those greater sins. That's what God wants to talk to you and me about this morning from this psalm. Finding forgiveness and restoration from those greater sins. I especially want us to focus on those greater sins we sometimes fall into. As you know, we all sin against God every day. I mean, who of you and I have ever loved God with all of our heart, mind, soul, body, and strength? You know, somewhere in the day, pride, my pride gets in there, my self-centeredness, my selfishness, and so forth, and we can go on and on. And I think we would agree that we sin against God every day. I mean, that's... Part of this journey that he's trying to wean us from. But this morning, we dig deeper and it gets a little more painful. God wants to zero in on our greater sins. So let's begin with point number one in your outline. Recognizing my greater sins. Point number one, Jesus speaks to Pilate of the greater sin. You ever think about that? He speaks to Pilate. Of the greater sin. When Jesus stood before Pilate, the governor of Judea, to be tried, Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, 
You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. There you have it. What did Jesus mean? He has the greater sin. Evidently, we might say there are degrees of sins, if you please. All sin is wrong. We understand that. All sin of every nature has its consequences. But some consequences, as you have learned through life, are much, much greater than others. By the way, we also know from the great white throne judgment that uh, all the unsaved are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. And I trust you know your name is written in that Lamb's book of life. And you know that beyond the shadow of a doubt because you've asked Jesus to be your Savior. But they will stand there and their name will not be written in the Lamb's book of life. And it says the books were opened and they were judged according to their deeds. What does that mean? It means there are greater consequences and there's greater punishment depending on what God has given to you to know about him and his son and salvation of what's right and wrong. Well, who is Jesus referring to when he said, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin? It might have been Judas Iscariot. It might have been. I don't really think it was he. I think it probably had to do with the high priest Caiaphas and all of those religious leaders. Why? Because they had the Old Testament scriptures. They knew who their Messiah or what he's going to be like. They also had seen and heard firsthand the life and character of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he said, the truth that came out of his mouth. They saw it and rejected. Pilate didn't have those privileges. So I think he's probably talking about them. But let's look at number two, recognizing my greater sins, David's greater sins, David's greater sins. Just like you and me, David sinned every day of his life. You understand that. He sinned every day of his life. But twice, twice in his walk with God, he fell into those greater sins. You recall the first time, or one of those times, that is, And that is, he decided, he, in his pride, I'm going to number the people of Israel. God said, you trust me. I'm the one who brings deliverance. Don't number the people. In fact, it intrigues me because even, and I would say Joab was what, a rather, he was not a very spiritual giant. He was David's commander-in-chief of his armies. And he said, look, you don't want to do that. Isn't that something? That God would use Joab? Look, David, you don't want to do that. But David, being king, had his way, and he numbered the people. And you know the consequences. I would call those huge consequences. 70,000 people lost their lives. 70,000 families suffered real pain because of that sin of David, that greater sin. We also know about David's other greater sin, and that's what this Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 51 is written about. In the Hebrew Bible, the subscript that begins this psalm tells us the occasion for David writing this psalm. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David's fall with Bathsheba is recorded in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. We'll not look at that. You all know that story quite well, I'm sure, anyway. But instead of leading his men out to army like he should have, he stayed home. Just sort of relaxed, enjoying himself. He wasn't on the battlefield. And while walking around on the rooftop, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. What he saw, he continued looking at, he wanted. And he's the king. The king gets what he wants. It's interesting, though, she became pregnant. 
kind of reminds me, I think it's in Numbers, I'm not sure. It says, be sure your sin will find you out. I hate that verse, but it's so important, isn't it? Be sure your sin will find you out. She became pregnant. But David quickly put a plan into action. He called Bathsheba's husband home from the battle and encouraged him to go down and enjoy his wife. The problem was this, and that is that Uriah was such a noble and honorable man that he wouldn't think of doing such a thing. He responds to King David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife? By your life, by the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Well, that was a problem. That didn't turn out very good in trying to cover up and hide his sin. So now David decides what he's going to do. He writes a note and he sends it by Uriah to Joab. He says, you take this man. And he said, you put him in the hottest part of the battle and then withdraw and let him be killed. And that's what happened. When the king gets word that Uriah had been killed, he waits until Bathsheba finishes mourning for her husband. And then he sends for her and takes her as his wife, who then bore him a son. But the Bible says the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Wow. God steps in and has something to say here, doesn't he? David was guilty of committing one of those greater sins. And what was the outcome? Well, as you know, those sins always have far greater consequences, don't they? Life teaches you that. For perhaps a year, give or take a little, David lived with his guilty conscience even though he had thought he covered up his sin and gotten away with it. He shares with us his great internal turmoil in Psalm 32. In fact, really, you have to study 32 and 51 together. They, they go together there. Then God sent Nathan the prophet. Huh. He comes into the king to tell him about his great injustice, which had been done in his kingdom. You know that story. He said to King David, a very rich man with lots of flocks and herds had taken a very poor man's only little ewe lamb in order to feed a wayfarer who had come to him. Oh, when King David heard about this great wrong, it says his anger burned greatly against the man. And he told Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for that lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. <laughs> Nathan then turns and says, you are the man. Wow. It's important that God does that to you and me, especially when we fall into these greater sins. It is so important that he does that as painful as it is. God sending his prophet Nathan to David was both a merciful and gracious act on God's part. Before David could experience full and complete forgiveness as well as cleansing and restoration that would bring back his joy and fellowship with God, God's law, God's heavy law would have to do its work in his life. And dear ones, that is always the case. Nobody even gets saved but what first God's law does its work. Nathan had to confront David with his sin, and the same is true in your and my life. If we are to find forgiveness and restoration from those greater sins, God's law must first do its work. Well, we're going to see now, as we move through this text in 51, just how it did that. But before we do that, let's look at the next major movement here. So important. So important. In your outline, seven losses. Seven losses that came as a result of David's greater sin. I said the consequences are always great. First, he lost his health. Something? He lost his health. I wonder how many Christians are in bad health because of greater sins that they won't deal with. I mean, we just feel like, oh, it's, you know, I can waltz through life or navigate through it somehow, and 
God says, no, it doesn't work that way. In verse 8, David prays to God, make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Broken bones, not literally. Mary broke her bones. I'll tell you one thing. She she didn't do it once, you know. She has to do it twice. Pray for her. Pray for me. But it's interesting being married to a wife that's broken her arm. There are a lot of difficulties, you know, as you have to spend those weeks and months getting fully healed, don't you? And David is describing his health in that way as well. David was crushed by the sense of guilt brought by Nathan's indictment as God's law did its work. But he had been crushed for nearly a year or longer. In Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, David describes even further how he lost his health because of this greater sin that he kept hidden for a year. He says, when I kept silent, listen to that, isn't this something? You ought to underscore that. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. That's one very unpleasant king you don't want to be around. Hmm. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. What a description of the effects of sin upon David's body. His body wasted away through his groaning all day long. His sin was like that of the eating flesh that begins to devour the body, if you please. And then those words, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. You know what? I'm thankful that God does that. I guess for pastors, elders... Godly men and women, we need to pray that God's hand will be heavy upon those that are redeemed that don't deal with their sin. Especially these greater sins. Oh God, let your hand be heavy upon them. Chase them like the hounds of heaven until they can stand it no longer and know what David learned and find that joy that comes from being forgiven and and reinstated. And those words... Then not your head, hand was heavy on my How true, how true. If you are truly one of God's children, you fall into some greater sin, you can be sure that your heavenly Father will place his heavy hand upon you. That's what Hebrews 12 says. It's in your Bible. Hebrews 12 says, My son, this is family now, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And then he had to add this. He had to add this, and he scourges every son whom he receives. That is painful. But God says, I do that because I love you. I don't want you just going through life wasting this journey when you can be in fellowship and know the joy of salvation. During that year of being out of fellowship, because of his falling into this greater sin, David says, my vitality was drained away as with fever heat of summer. I don't know how many of you have worked out in a very, very hot summer, maybe with a shovel digging, and the humidity is very high. Guess what? You don't last very long, do you? And David is saying, that's what was taking place for a year because of my sin. David lost his health because of this greater sin. This will be true with you and me as well. And secondly, he lost his clean heart. Oh my, he lost his clean heart and his steadfast spirit. In verse 10, David prays to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do you remember when you first got saved? Think back then if you can. You placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and all the joy that just flooded your heart. You knew for the first time that all your sins had been washed away. And all the the sense of release as you knew you had a clean and a pure heart before God. 
For the first time, your heart was completely clean, as God declares through the prophet Isaiah, Come now, come now, he says, and let us reason together. You and me, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. How precious. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to hear that. You need to know that God says, Look, come, let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Something happened to David's heart, though. His innermost being. When he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband killed and tried to cover it all up, after all, he was the king. But he lost his clean heart and that guilty conscience before God took its place. And no longer did he have a steadfast spirit. What is a steadfast spirit? It's a spirit that is assured of its standing in grace. And he had no assurance anymore. And he knew it. And his family knew it. Number three, seven losses that came as a result of David's greater sin. He came close. Oh, he came so close to losing his anointing by the Spirit. He came so close, folks, to losing his anointing by the Spirit. Verse 11, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David had seen this happen firsthand with King Saul. God the Holy Spirit came upon Saul when God sent his prophet Samuel to anoint him to be king over Israel as the first king. But then Samuel came to him and said, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. God does that. It's not an issue whether Samuel or Saul went to heaven or hell. He says, You've been rejected by God of your high calling. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And David knew, David knew this could happen to him as well. My. Yes, it's true that today when a person comes to Christ and gets saved, you receive God the Holy Spirit. He permanently indwells you and you can never lose him. And I'm so glad of that. That's the assurance of our salvation. But that does not mean you cannot lose His anointing. That's a concern. does not mean that God may not put you on the shelf because you will not deal with an issue in your life when He is moving your heart to do that. That was Paul's concern, by the way. The Apostle Paul. You know what he wrote there in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others... I myself will not be disqualified. What do you mean? He means I'm a vessel and somehow the housewife uses this for highly quality intended purposes, but it falls off the shelf and it gets a crack in it. And no longer can she put oils and stuff like that in it. Yeah, it's a secondary use. Paul says, I don't want that to happen to me. So dear ones, how important this is. He came close to losing his anointing by the Spirit. David knew that this was a very real concern, and this is a very real concern for you and me today. I do not want to lose the Holy Spirit's anointing in my own life. I do not want you to lose it in your life. You see, God says, I have a high intended purpose for you. I want to greatly bless you. I want to greatly use you. But that can be thrown away. Sadly to say, many Christians do exactly that. You don't want to lose that. Neither do I. Number four. He lost the joy of his salvation. He lost the joy of his salvation. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You see, the greatest gift that God ever gave to any one of us is salvation. I mean, think about that. In that salvation, he removed all your sins. He removed all your condemnation, your guilt. He removed all your judgment. He reconciled you to himself and he became your, my heavenly father. And then you entered into a wonderful fellowship with Him. He gave your life meaning and purpose. 
He assures you that heaven is your home and you will safely arrive there. What joy fills the Christian's heart. And David, falling into the greater sin and not dealing with it, lost that joy. My. I think about what a testimony that is to a lost world when a Christian really is just filled full of joy. Wow. Have you lost your joy? The joy of your salvation? Only really you can answer that. Maybe those living around you can answer. I'm sure David's family could answer that for him. Listen to his response. He once, he says, once he got right with God, Psalm 32, 7 and verse 11, Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. Isn't that good? Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice as his testimony, you righteous ones, and shout for joy. All you who are upright in heart. Listen, that's from a guy who for one solid year was miserable. How good of God to send Nathan to him. You know this verse well. Nehemiah 8.10 The joy of the Lord is your strength. did Did you get that? The joy of the Lord is your what? Strength. Say it again. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You lose your joy, you lose your spiritual strength, don't you? Galatians, and by the way, as Paul said, rejoice in the Lord. And always again, I say rejoice. That's a command, double command there. In Galatians 5, he says, where do you get this joy? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love and what? Joy. David lost it. So many Christians lose it for the same reason. Number five, he lost his godly life that convicted and restored others. It's a pretty important thing. He lost his godly life that convicted and restored others. David had a great impact on others. You know that. He was the man after God's own heart. And that affected all of Israel. And now it was gone. I bind you one thing. He didn't have much testimony with his commander, Chief Joab. Joab knew exactly what he did. He knew that David had covered all that up by having Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, killed. Lost his godly life. Look at verse 13. Then, he says, verse 13 and 51, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. And by the way, God restored that, as you know, and that's exactly what David did. And he wants to do the same with you and me. I'll tell you one thing, he lost his godly fluence in his home. I bind you, his kids didn't see a godly man whose heart was after God for that year. I imagine they would just soon get out of the palace. I think of Tamar, his daughter, his sons Amnon and Absalom, and all the other kids. And his kids picked up on his sinful ways, didn't they? They sure did. For about a year, it was not even pleasant, as I said, to be in the palace with the king who was out of sorts with God. And now in Psalm, Psalm 51, verse 13, David is ready to regain that godly life that earlier had convicted and restored others. He said, I want it back. And God gave it back to him. What a merciful, compassionate God. Number six. Number six. He lost his channel through which God blessed his people. He lost his channel through which God blessed his people Israel. Verses 18 and 19, by your favor, that was lost. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. We know from the Old Testament scriptures that whenever a king rebelled against God, what did God do? He removed his blessing from the people. We saw that in that other greater sin that David committed when 70,000 lost their lives. All because of his sin. Because of sin with Bathsheba, David had to flee for his life out of Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem and Judea were in chaos. I wonder how many homes are in chaos for the very same reason. Falling into that greater sin and not 
dealing with it and finding forgiveness and restoration. My. But don't despair. Don't despair. God still wants to bless you, and we get to that in just a few minutes. Number seven, though, seven losses. Number seven, he lost his fellowship and walk with God. He lost his fellowship and walk with God. I think David captures that loss when he pins verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's something that Saul never offered to God, but David did. That's why he said that. A prayer and a plea, really, there. For over a year, David did not have a broken spirit, a contrite heart. He would not confess and forsake his sin before God. In one sense, this entire psalm is about David's severed fellowship with God and what it cost him. I'm drawn to that precious verse, 1 John 1, 7. Don't you love it? 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in light, we have fellowship with one another. Isn't that good? We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. What a marvelous, merciful God that does that. As you can see from this study in the life of David, those greater sins do have greater consequences. It cost David greatly. Little did he know that when he declared to the prophet he must make restitution to the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion, that he would pay fourfold for his sin. He lost the baby, didn't he? The baby died. God said the baby's going to die because of your sin. And then his daughter, Tamar, was defiled by her half-brother, Amnon, number two. Then Absalom came and murdered Amnon, number three. And then Absalom rebelled against David and the kingdom, and Joab slew him, number four, fourfold. What a price. But as dark as David's greater sin was, and this means a lot to me, listen, this means a lot to me, but as great as David's greater sin was, the bright grace of God still shone through. Isn't that good? And praise God, it can do the same for you and me as well. Oh, how thankful to God we are. And so we come now to the next major movement here, how David found forgiveness and restoration from God. So please don't turn me off here, but keep following along. How David found forgiveness and restoration from God. Number one, he received God's reproof. He received God's reproof. I'm sure it wasn't pleasant for Job a pleasant job that God laid upon the prophet Nathan to have to go to the king and confront him for his sin. And the prophet Samuel had to do the same thing with King Saul. And the outcome there wasn't very great, was it? Pretty bad. In fact, King Saul says Samuel never saw Saul again after that. No one enjoys being confronted for their sin. I'm going to come up. I'm going to, you, you want a confession from me? I do not like to be confronted with my sin. Oh, I know you do, right? Sure you do. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 12, 1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. You know who said it? God. He who hates reproof is stupid. When God stepped into your life and sends somebody to reprove you when you fall into that greater sin, listen, it is an act of mercy and compassion and grace on God's part that he does that. He cares that much about you and me. He is seeking to restore you before, listen, before even greater trouble comes your way. And some of you could stand up here and give a testimony and say, that is 100% true. My so humbly receive reproof and take the next step that David took. Number two, he called sin in his life sin and confessed it as such. 
He called sin in his life sin and confessed it as such. Verses 1 through 3, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David uses three different terms here to underscore what a wretched thing it is. Transgressions speak of David's rebellion against God and his law. Then he sees his sin as a a mass of debts written down with a view to the time when the penalty has to be paid. That's what transgression means. And then iniquity is a perversion. It is a twisting of God's moral standards. While sin is missing God's mark, he said, I've done all three. I'm guilty of all three. In fact, David uses the strongest term here for sin. He places it first in the Hebrew sentence for emphasis. The man's broken. He's repentant. Notice David doesn't attempt to excuse or ignore about his falling into sin. He owns it before God. He confesses his sin before God. And dear ones, that is part of the benefit of genuine repentance and confession. That's what 1 John 1, 9 is all about. If we confess our sins, that means agree with God. That it's sin, it's rebellion against him. If I confess my sins, he is what? Faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a God, what a salvation. What a precious promise from our Heavenly Father. Number three, he came to God. He came to God with his sin. He didn't just acknowledge he had sinned. He came to God. By the way, that's how people get saved, isn't it? You have to come to God. Verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your compassion, blot out my transgressions. And God, with open arms, invites and pleads with us to come with our sin to him. He said again, come now and let us reason together. Saith the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. And I think about the Lord when he was in the midst of the people of Israel. And he stood up and said, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, he said. Take my yoke, come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. And what? You shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Do you know what nearly the last verses, the last verse in the Bible is? God's going to wrap up his written revelation. What do you have to say? Revelation chapter 22, nearly the last verse. Come, he says to me. Isn't that something? God's saying to all mankind, it's in rebellion and sin and transgression. Come to me, he says. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let everyone who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let him, the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. God loves to completely forgive sinners and fill their hearts with full of joy and hope. But in order for him to do that, what? You have to come. You have to come to God. Number four, he fully acknowledged his sin as being against God. He didn't just come to God. He fully acknowledged that his sin was against God. I think that's interesting. Verse 4, he says, Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Listen, David had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against the whole nation of Israel. He had sinned against his own family. Yet, ultimately, one must come to that place of realizing that all our sin is against God. It is his absolute standard of right that we've broken. It is his holy character that we have offended. It is only through his son's atonement for our sin that he can forgive us. I have this question for you, and I want you to think about it because it's really serious and important for today. Can a person get saved before the law has done its work in his life? If the law does its work, what happens? 
It brings you to a place of realizing I have sinned against God. I am guilty before God. I fear that one of the, you, you know that Satan's going to be a mastermind of this. He's going to have people say, well, sure I want to go to heaven. Sure I want to feel better. Sure I want a better life. Well, then you need to ask Jesus to come into your heart. Oh, okay, I'll do that. And they go right on living in their sinful way. That is happening a lot and you know it. It's happening a lot. People are asking Jesus to come into heart. They'll go down the, down in aisles today in church after church, ask Jesus to come into their heart and say things because they want to be forgiven and go to heaven. And they'll go right out and live the same old life they've always been living until the law has done its duty and you're like David, broken. And you come to God and say, I have sinned against you, you only. I doubt there can be real salvation. You can call that repentance if you want. In fact, I think the greatest book and the greatest definition in Bible in all the Bible is right here in verse 4. I really do have repentance. What does he say against you? You only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He fully acknowledged his sin as being against God. Number five, he humbly accepted God's verdict and judgment. He humbly accepted God's verdict and judgment. Against you, you only have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak. And you're blameless when you judge. Did you know that's how I got saved? Even a little boy? I didn't want to go to hell. I knew I was a sinner. We can talk about little things, big things. It didn't matter. I knew I was a sinner. And I understood that if I didn't have Jesus in my heart, if I didn't repent and have him in my heart, I was going to go to hell. I understood that. And I came to God and I said this, God, I believe, I believe that if I died right now, I believe if I died right now, I would go to hell, and I deserve to go there. What did I do? I did exactly what David did. I did exactly what David did. You are justified when you speak. You say, I'm a sinner? No problem. I agree with you 100%. I'm a sinner. You tell me that I'm going to go to hell? You're going to cast me in the lake of fire if I die in this condition? I agree with you. I deserve that. But then I threw myself upon the mercy of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Oh, I believe with all my heart, Jesus, you died on that cross for me. You bore all my sins. You bore all my judgment, my punishment. And on the third day, you were raised from the dead. And you said, if I would ask you in my heart, you would come in. And I got saved that day. I'm just a little kid and I got saved and God's still doing it. He's saving old people too, by the way. Isn't that great? Not just little kids. He humbly accepted God's verdict and judgment. And then sixth... He humbly pleaded for God alone to forgive and cleanse him. He humbly pleaded for God alone to forgive and cleanse him. Look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And then verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing for your righteousness. Did you know this? There was no provision in the Mosaic law for anybody who committed adultery or committed a murder. The law demanded death. No provision. Not even for the king. But David threw himself upon the mercy of a loving, merciful, compassionate God. You may not be aware of this, but I want to read a verse to you that's found in Romans 4. It talked about Abraham being justified by faith. Well, here's David under the law. Guilty. And the law demanded, the law demanded his death. But here's what Paul writes. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, apart from the law. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Isn't that great? God out of mercy said, I'll fulfill the requirements of the law of my son. 
I'll forgive you, David, and I will restore you. Oh, I'll tell you, what a blessing those words are to you and me that God does that to us today. Finding forgiveness and restoration from those greater sins. You'll remember that Peter disqualified himself, didn't he? Denied the Lord. That was it. What was his cracked pot? His high intended purpose was to be what? An apostle. One of the original apostles. And he disqualified himself. It's over. No one went out and wept bitterly. I find it, what a blessing, that the Lord, after his resurrection, it says, appeared to Peter. But not only that. Not only that. Then on John chapter 21, Peter out there with the other apostles, some of the other apostles, the Lord comes to him. What does he do? In front of all those apostles, he restores Peter to his apostleship. What a God. What a magnanimous, merciful, compassionate, gracious God. Do you need to find forgiveness and restoration as well this morning? You know, so many of us, we, we do. We fall into those greater sins. Not just sins, we fall into greater sins. One thing about this body of believers here, we're family. Am I right? Am I family or not? I've got to find this out. Yeah, we're not exempt. And the devil just loves to get in there and cause you to fall. And the consequences are so high and costly and you could testify to that. And yet the Lord says, I want to restore. I want to forgive. I want to bring restoration. Maybe you're troubled, haunted by some greater sin you've fallen into. That just as enslaved and chained you down this morning. And yes, there are very painful consequences. Very painful consequences. They're still there. But let God sanctify them. Let God, your heavenly father, sanctify them as he did for David here. And claim God's precious promise. What is that promise? Where sin abounded, grace super abounded. Amen? Heavenly Father, we're a bunch of imperfect people. I know we sin every day, and sometimes, once in a while, Satan somehow, some way, we allow him to get in, and we really sin. And one way we know that is because of the consequences, the price we pay. It inflicts a great wound in our, and scar, on our lives. I just cannot thank you and praise you enough that there are so many people that are wounded and scarred that have been at the foot of the cross. And even as believers, they have come back and they, like David, have said, Oh God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. I'm not making an excuse for my sins. I want you to bless me. I want to be used by you. I want to know that joy and that fellowship with you once again. And Father, I thank you that your arms are always open. Even as we come to the communion table, your arms are always open saying, I'm ready to do it. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Oh, Father, may that happen in every life here this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.